Hello and welcome to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I am an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado. The goal of this podcast is to connect, learn, and inspire. In this podcast, you'll be hearing from OMS surgeons all over the globe discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. Most information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement what you learn here with approved research studies. If you are a regular follower of the podcast, please go to our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, and register to receive newsletters and find links to our social media accounts. Most importantly, if you would like to be interviewed on the podcast or know someone who you'd like to hear from, or if there's a topic you'd like to hear about, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. All right, welcome to another episode. Today I'm with Dr. Michael Maloro. He's an Orlomax facial surgeon practicing in Chicago. Dr. Maloro, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Grant. Yeah, I really appreciate you doing this again. We did an episode prior where we talked um, about the program there at UIC and some of the great things that are happening and some of your philosophies about surgery and being a resident. And that was super helpful. So appreciate that. Yeah. So today I was hoping we could talk a little bit about your, uh, I guess, philosophy, practice philosophy and, and the way you deal with TMD. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, how you start with a patient who comes in and has TMD? This is a really controversial topic, as you can imagine, and there are several issues to talk about. And I think my philosophy is my philosophy. And the problem is it's it's not evidence-based because the evidence is just not there in the literature. If we look for well-designed studies evaluating surgical management of TMD, we're left with a big void, unfortunately. So what we have in the literature really are case series and case reports. And it's really one surgeon's experience based upon their training, their preferences, their philosophies, and their biases. And the studies that are out there are actually surgeons evaluating their own outcomes. What we really need is patient-reported outcomes, and I think that that's the way the literature is going. We need to hear from the patients, not from the surgeons, because again, there's so much bias. So there's bias in, in my philosophy. We were always taught, and the Amos parameters of care, in fact, teach us that Surgical intervention for TMD, maybe internal derangement, is only indicated when non-surgical therapy fails. And it's really interesting. It, there was a paper published a few years ago, 2020, I think, by Al Moraci. And he did a meta-analysis and actually showed that, again, the literature is poor, is of low quality. But what he actually found was that we shouldn't really be waiting for exhaustion of non-surgical therapy, which includes bite splint, physical therapy, what's been termed conservative therapy, using soft diet, a bite splint, all of that. The evidence that actually shows that minimally invasive procedures like arthrocentesis or arthroscopy should be implemented as first-line therapy and not delayed because, as you probably remember, uh, when being a resident here, we, we gave patients the recipe for non-surgical therapy and maybe had them do it for six weeks or so and then come back and see how they were doing. And most of them did not follow our recommendations. And really, are those things like moist heat, soft diet, bite splint, are they going to correct an anatomic internal derangement problem? Probably not. So to get in there with arthrocentesis or arthroscopy is probably indicated mostly. So back to my practice, I think 
I've said this for many years now. I think that there are really three procedures that we do in TMJ surgery. And they are, for me, it's arthrocentesis. Or if, you, if you're adept at arthroscopy, you can, you can do arthroscopies, but something minimally invasive like that. And then discectomy. And again, if you've got expertise and experience with discopexy, disc repositioning, that would be in that category as well. And then the third one is total joint replacement. So really, it comes down to being that simple about it. And I think in 2024, the majority of our patients, actually, the first line therapy is arthrocentesis. Got it. Okay. And I know you kind of taught us when a patient comes in and we're first evaluating them to do, and you're asking them all about their pain and what type of pain we do that. You taught us to do the, is it five finger or one finger pain where they're pointing right at the joint with one finger, or is it like using their whole hand to show their whole side of their face? Exactly. That's the finger hand sign. Yeah. So one finger pointing to the joint, you know, typically points to an arthrogenous etiology of their pain while a hand or moving the finger across the uh, face. Generally, the muscles of mastication, like the masseter muscle indicates a myofascial component. But you bring up a really good point, and the point is we really want a diagnosis. And in most cases, we don't have a diagnosis, but we struggle to achieve one. And I think that the key to success of treatment is to have an accurate diagnosis. That goes with anything, not just TMD. So we need to know, is it articular? Is it muscular? Is it a chronic pain condition? Is it a combination of all of those? And Chuck Green said it, Chuck Green's from UIC, and he said it a long time ago in 2021, he said, it's nearly always an idiopathic situation. It may involve bruxism, it may involve internal derangement, whatever those things are. And many times we can't find a diagnosis, but we we do a reasonable job in treating the patient anyway without a diagnosis, but we don't wanna do anything that's irreversible. So I think my treatment philosophy is individualize the patient care, do conservative patient care, something that's reversible, and something that's non-invasive or minimally invasive like arthrocentesis. And the bottom line for me really is that these patients should be treated in a multidisciplinary setting with a team of specialists. Now, how can we expect that one oral and maxillofacial surgeon is an expert in managing stress that's many times needing psychiatric or psychologic counseling, bruxism that needs a splint or Botox injection, myofascial pain, again, Botox or medications and physical therapy, we're really experts, those of us who do it, in, in surgical management, either arthrocentesis, discectomy, or total joint replacement. So it really is, it's, it's set up to be a failure, to be honest, because if you don't have a team in place, we're really imparting our biases in the treatment of that patient. And I think that in my experience and my, my position right now, and we're, we're actually trying to fill a position at University of Illinois, Chicago, with an oral facial pain expert. And that person would lead the team of including an oral surgeon, a physical therapist, an orthodontist, a prosthodontist, and a clinical psychologist. And I think that in a team setting like that, that's where patients are best treated because they come to us. And you remember when you were a resident that the patients come and, and we're their last line of treatment. They've seen many specialists, ENT docs and others that couldn't help them. And really, surgery is, is not really indicated for the majority of these patients who come in with a myofascial pain component. Yeah, I love that you bring up the team approach because I've often thought that, you know, a patient will come in. Usually the typical TMD patient I see is high anxiety. They're stressed out. They have the anatomic structure of their jaws that lends to just tons of force and when they're bruxing and 
I'm thinking, how are we going to solve this with just doing a surgery when there's so many lifestyle things involved? So many confounding variables that patient heterogeneity is is significant. So you can't, we say, if you've seen one TMJ patient, you've seen one TMJ patient because that patient, every patient has something different. They have stressors in the life, as you mentioned, they have parafunctional habits. Some do, some don't. So you have to treat each patient individually and not generalize your treatment. So every patient is not a nail and we've got one hammer that's going to treat all of them. So that treatment really, as I mentioned before, needs to be individualized. Yeah. Okay. So the patient who comes into the office that has pain in their joint, what series of testing and evaluation do you do that will get them to the point of saying, yes, you're a good candidate for arthrocentesis? Yeah, it's a good question. The clinical exam is really key for us, and we can do a really quick, brief TMJ examination looking at maximum opening. Actually, one of my pearls is to to look at MIO before palpating the joint. So I do uh, inspection before palpation because if, if, if you palpate the joint and there's pain, it might limit their maximum opening. So MIO, protrusion, lateral excursions, and joint palpation, sometimes using a stethoscope to see if there's a click that is not palpable, and also to listen for crepitus that might indicate that there are arthritic changes in the joint. And after our exam, you know, we make a determination, can we help this patient with arthrocentesis? Now, arthrocentesis has many possible benefits. One is the the old Nitzen-Dolwick philosophy that in a patient with an acute closed lock, that the disc is stuck to the articular surface and that irrigating the joint will break up that vacuum effect and free up the disc. And that that is effective if it's done within a time, maybe a few months or weeks after the disc is stuck. But any time after that, the retrodiscal tissues get stretched and the disc is not really recapturable. And the other thing that I think is really helpful with arthrocentesis is that we can irrigate out the inflammatory mediators and that results in pain relief. Now, of course, we're not treating the etiology. So in my opinion, those inflammatory mediators come back unless we do something interceptive. And I think that studies do show that if you use a splint after arthrocentesis, you have better long-term outcomes than if you don't use a splint. And I think, again, most oral maxillofacial surgeons who do arthrocentesis do not use splint therapy. And then I'm, I'm frequently asked, well, how many times would you repeat the arthrocentesis if we get three or six months out of it of benefit. You know, we might repeat it twice, maybe three times, but at that point we need to determine maybe some something else for for the patient because it's not a long long-term sustainable option. So maybe then the patient goes on to something else like disco discectomy or discopexy. Okay. And what clinical, I guess, pearls or things have you come to find over the years that help make an arthrocentesis effective? Getting in and getting out quickly, not causing iatrogenic problems, not causing scuffing of the cartilage with the needle or the arthroscope, and knowing your landmarks. And like I said, uh, irrigating, the studies show that that LR, lactated ringers, is probably better than normal saline, but both are effective. And 60 to 100 cc's is really all you need. Anything more than that is not really useful in the literature. And having the patient open their mouth. So we generally do it under sedation. So we want to get them open. We want to get excursions and protrusion. If we're trying to free up a stuck disc, we want some movement during the arthrocentesis procedure itself. And I forgot to mention before you asked about diagnosis and I talked about clinical exam. I didn't talk about radiographic examination. And certainly a panorex may indicate some arthritic changes only but the value of an MRI has been really questioned. And it used to be something that we routinely 
obtained on patients. And now I can't remember the last time we really got an MRI to help with our diagnosis. And actually, Dr. Michael Hahn is doing a study looking at that right now. We've actually presented it as an, as an abstract already. But the usefulness of MRI in helping your, your clinical diagnosis is just not there. And it doesn't warrant that examination. It's costly. And it really doesn't help, especially if your clinical exam is non-equivocal. I suppose that if you do have an equivocal examination and you wanted to document disposition, that might be a study that might be useful. Okay. So it's mostly though the clinical exam and like a panorex or some basic imaging for the arthrocentesis? Yeah, some screening, some screening x-ray I think is probably beneficial. Okay. And you mentioned using saline. Do you use a type of steroid injection or any anti-inflammatory medication when you're doing the arthrocentesis? Mm-hmm. So there are a few good studies that one actually recently published and in the uh, International Journal this year, again, by Al Moraci, someone who actually has an interest in this and, and many other things. And he looked at another meta-analysis of the clinical studies using arthrocentesis or arthroscopy. And they actually found that arthrocentesis with PRP is one of the more successful treatment options. So that's that's becoming pretty well known that PRP is actually more effective than hyaluronic acid or Helon that I typically would use and is better than corticosteroid. And we've always known that corticosteroid is really not uh, one of the better intraarticular injections to use because it does it could cause more more damage than good. So we're right at the point now where PRP and if you have to be able to prepare that in your office if you want to use that or HA hyaluronic acid and the problem with with HA hyaluronic acid is it's expensive to use. So most people just squirt some corticosteroid in there without knowing that it inhibits chondroblasts and it can cause damage especially if the articular surfaces are involved. Interesting. Okay. So mostly the PRP is what you're injecting. Yeah, we've got a machine to be able to do that. If you don't have that machine, then you're not able to do that. I use PRP, PRF a ton in bone grafts and the various things I'm doing. And I've, I mean, honestly, it's pretty darn cheap. You can find a centrifuge on Amazon for like 200 bucks that works great. So it's pretty cost effective. Right. And the disposables are not that expensive. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So then someone's had orthocentesis that may or may not work. When do you move to discopexy or discectomy? Yeah. I mean, you've got to have a diagnosis of internal derangement. Some of these patients have a normal disc position and they just have pain. So really my philosophy about about discectomy or, or manipulating the disc is we're treating the patient not to treat disposition, but dysfunction. Dysfunction is the most important part. So most studies have shown that no treatment can be successful in maintaining disposition. Post-op MRI studies of discopexy procedures or disc replacement procedures have shown that the disc goes back to an anterior pedial position, yet patients do get better. And really, it begs the question, why does open joint surgery result in pain relief for patients? Well, I think it's it's several possible answers to that. Is it actual disc manipulation? I don't think so. I don't think that's what results in pain relief. I think it's one thing I mentioned about arthrocentesis. It's clearing out the inflammatory mediators because we have the joint wide open. Uh, It's the use of postoperative analgesics, a splint maybe. There's an initial limitation of function following open joint surgery. And then there's also a philosophy that when we, through our incision, 
we can transect branches of the auriculotemporal nerve, the masseteric and posterior deep temporal nerves, and that results in pain relief, at least temporarily, before those nerves heal themselves. And then Dr. Laskin, who was at University of Illinois with Dr. Green, did many placebo studies, and there is placebo effect of open joint surgery. There was one study done in Sweden many years ago where they performed an incision, a preauricular incision only, and then closed the incision. And it resulted in 65% improvement in signs and symptoms in patients. So never underestimate the power of the placebo effect. Wow. Okay. When do you make that decision to say a discectomy versus, you know, manipulating the disc? Again, it's a very simple answer for me. It's got to affect function. The disc position or abnormal disc position has to affect function adversely. So if it's causing significant deviation on opening or quality of life issues for the patient, a significant joint noise for the patient, then I'll proceed to discectomy. And initially, we have two papers. I have two papers on discectomy without replacement and roughly 40-some-odd patients. Again, it's plagued by the biases I talked about before. I'm evaluating my own, my own outcomes, although I think residents were involved in all of those uh, studies. So residents were evaluating those patients. But it did seem to result in improvement in pain, in opening, and in function. And I think that I don't like the idea my personal bias is I don't like the idea of disc repositioning for basically four reasons. One is the disc is likely deformed and to use a deformed disc or one with a perforation in the retrodiscal tissues doesn't make a lot of sense to try to maintain that. Number two is there's likely decreased joint space if that disc has been anteriorly displaced for a while. And how can you pull a disc back into the joint space over the condylar head if there's no room anymore? And really what should happen is there should be an open bite on that side if you pull that disc back into over the condyle in a joint space that's, that has decreased uh, joint space. And most of these patients don't have an open bite on that side after surgery. So I'm not sure exactly is that disc going back to where it should be. And then the other thing I said, I mentioned before is if there are articular surface changes like in the condyle and the fossa, that, that you know, we're talking about getting into a higher Wilkes stage, a Wilkes 3, 4, maybe even 5, I don't think that that's amenable to disc repositioning. I'll talk about that more in a second, about the Wilkes, Wilkes impacting upon my treatment decisions. And the last thing is, most of the time these patients are functioning on the retrodiscal tissue and after discectomy, and I think what's been described as a pseudo-disc forms after discectomy, and really, you don't need anything in there any longer. And the, always the, the thought is that discectomy leads to accelerated osteoarthritis and the need for total joint replacement. Now, that's not been my experience. Certainly, some patients have gone on to need total joint replacement after discectomy or any open joint procedure, including discopexy or displication. So I don't think that having a discectomy commits the patient to a total joint replacement. And globally, the way I look at patients in terms of Wilkes staging is, and I think this is probably pretty universally accepted by centers that see TMJ patients is, for Wilkes 1 and 2 stage disease, arthrocentesis or arthroscopy is probably indicated for those patients. For Wilkes 3s and 4s and certainly 5s, if you do disc repositioning or disc replacement, okay, I don't like it for the reasons I mentioned, so I'd go right to discectomy for Wilkes 3s and 4s, and certainly Wilkes 5s with significant resorption of the condyle, they need total joint replacement. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful to break it down. And 
kind of see where you're going with those. Hey guys, real quick, KLS Martin is offering a 35% discount on my favorite KLS Martin instruments for everyday oral surgery listeners. So there's a link um, in the podcast notes with a full listing and a video highlighting some of the advantages of using KLS Martin instrumentation. Uh, to utilize this offer, use promo code STUKIFAVES with a capital S and a capital F. So capital S, lowercase T-U-C-K-I, capital F, lowercase A-V-S. And you can use that through your KLS Martin sales rep or by emailing usa at klsmartin.com. I handpicked these instruments based on the kind of favorite extraction instruments that I use on a daily basis, and um, I hope you enjoy them. Any clinical tips on doing the discectomy, or what, what have you found to be effective with that? Yeah, I have some pearls for the way I do discectomy. Typically, I like to use a urology drape. I'm not sure you remember doing that with me where we use that drape that goes inside the mouth and is sealed around the oral cavity so that I can get in there and open and manipulate the jaw to feel the condylar head and make sure that we're heading right for the superior joint space. Typically, I like an endoral incision. I think it's even a preauriculars, it actually heals pretty well, but patients actually prefer hiding that scar in an endoral position. And I think I can get pretty good access to the joint space from an endoral incision. And I never say never, but never I never extend that incision into the temporal area. And I see lectures throughout the world where for an open joint procedure, that incision is extended into the temporal region in kind of a question mark type format. And really all the work is just below that. And the surgeon has exposed that temporalis fashion, temporalis muscle really for no reason. So I keep my incision really from the top of the ear to the to just above the tragus, just below the tragus rather, really conservative. The first thing I do is is keep everything moving forward. I don't know if you remember that as well. So we don't want to be in the middle ear. We want everything moving forward. First, identify the zygomatic arch, which is really an easy landmark to identify, and then just pop below that. Typically, I'll then do an arthrocentesis, just inject some local anesthesia into the superior joint space to define it. And then I can use a 15 blade to enter horizontally into the superior joint space. And you'll see the egress of all that local anesthetic that I injected in there. And then I'll make a second horizontal incision to enter the inferior joint space and then just work the superior and inferior joint space to isolate the disc and then gradually free it up from the medial collateral ligament, which is probably the more difficult area to get to medially. I use a curved modified freer to get to that area to uh, bluntly try to get that medial collateral ligament off of the medial pole of the condyle. And then we can get the retrodiscal tissues relatively fairly easily because that disc was anteriorly displaced. So we're probably looking mostly at the retrodiscal tissues. So those are easy to incise. And probably the most difficult part to get to is, to, is the medial pterygoid, sorry, the lateral pterygoid muscle that's attached anteromedially to the disc. And we have to do some work there to get to the lateral pterygoid muscle. And then, like I said, I, I generally take the disc out and I'll inject a uh, helon or sodium hyaluronic acid. Maybe I'll consider PRP now and then close in layers, make sure we close the capsule and then the superficial tissues in the skin. And then every patient of mine gets a therabyte. I generally don't start it immediately post-op. I give them a week to recover. And then at their one week appointment, we'll show them how to use the therabyte. Typically the therabyte, I have them use it three times a day. And really that's an isometric exercise where really it's it's the act of keeping the mouth open 
for 10 seconds using that therabyte and then relax and maybe 10 reps three times a day. And I find that most patients actually abandon the use of the therabyte by week three or so because their opening is beyond 35 millimeters, which is typically our goal, and even even more than that. So that's my general regimen for discectomy and postoperative care. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for explaining that, those techniques and how you find the disc, get it out. With those retrodiscal tissues, they just kind of retract or do you do anything there? I don't do anything there. No, like I said, I, I anticipate that they're going to go on to form what's called a pseudo disc, at least some fibrous tissue there that will cushion the condyle against the glenoid fossa. And the philosophy of many other surgeons is to put something in there like abdominal fat grafting. And I just, it's not something that, that I do, but I, I don't think it's wrong to do that. It's just not in my protocol. Okay. Are most of your patients that you're doing these on, is it just unilateral discectomy or how many need a bilateral? That's such a good question. Most of the time it's unilateral, but some patients have a non-reducing disc on one side and a reducing disc on the other side. And in that case, we go in and I just recently did a case like that where the impact of discectomy on on one side on on the reducing disc on the other side is unclear we're not sure it can make it better it can make it worse it can have no effect so i rarely do bilateral discectomy because i want to see the impact of unilateral discectomy on the other disc okay that makes sense all right and then at what point would you you mentioned if there wilkes five and there's bony changes and deterioration from that standpoint you're you're talking about a total joint what kind of stands out on the clinical exam when you're saying, hey, this person is, let's jump right to the total joint? Yeah, again, they must have a functional, a significant functional impairment. And most of these patients actually have significant resorption with open bite deformities and loss of ramus height. So I like to say the patient will tell me when they're ready for the total joint replacement. I don't tell the patient when they're ready for a total joint replacement. Very similar to a knee replacement, that patient has to have significant functional problems to go to the orthopedic surgeon and really request a total knee replacement. Got it. Okay. I wanted to mention something else about another procedure that's really has been very effective in the past for me and maybe is not well known throughout the country, but it's a modified condylotomy. We've done some here. And we continue to, to be impressed on how that works. So it's really a vertical ramus osteotomy of the mandible, allowing the proximal segment to sag so that the condyle is now under the displaced disc. So not trying to move the disc or, or impact on disc position, but to put the condyle under the disc in its displaced position and have function restored. And again, I mentioned the most important thing in terms of managing TMD surgically is to affect a dysfunction, not disposition. And that was described by Hall and Nickerson many years ago, and it still is an effective technique to use. And when would that be a good consideration? If I think that the disc is salvageable in one form or another, if we, if we get an MRI and it did show that the disc is not deformed or there's reducing disc that's not been chronic in nature, I might consider a modified condylotomy. The biggest downside of that is a, is a transient malocclusion, but typically these patients do, do not have a long-term malocclusion. But it is a really great procedure to stay out of a joint space. As you know, anytime you enter a joint, whether it be an orthopedic joint or a TM joint, there's scarring that occurs and there are problems that can happen. So if we can stay out of the joint space with a modified condylotomy, I think that that's a reasonable option. 
Okay. And that when you do the VRO of the mandible, you're just kind of letting it sag to kind of where it wants to go. You're not putting any fixation on there, right? Correct. No fixation. But the difference between a VRO and a modified condylotomy is that you need to strip a little bit of the uh, medial pterygoid muscle to allow that sag to happen. In both procedures, we're completely stripping off the masseter muscle. But in the modified condylotomy, you need to strip a little bit of the medial pterygoid to allow that condyle to sag. Got it. Okay. All right. And then moving on to the, the total joint, what, I guess, pearls do you have for that procedure? Typically, if there's an open bite, we're typically doing bimaxillary surgery on these patients with a counterclockwise rotation of the maxillomandibular complex. It helps with function, but it also helps with aesthetics in these patients. We're using custom prostheses on all of these total joint patients. It's been relatively straightforward. We have cutting guides for the uh, condylectomy and coronoidectomy if we're planning a coronoidectomy if the patient has ankylosis, for example, as the indication for the total joint replacement. And the uh, prostheses are custom. So really, there's not much in the way of complications or problems that can happen, especially in experienced hands. And I think that just brings up another point about who should be treating these patients. We did a few survey studies in the past that looked at resident training in TMJ surgery. Of course, the CODA standards are very vague about TMJ surgery, and they, they could use some improvement because TMJ surgery falls under reconstructive surgery. And based upon the CODA standards, at least my interpretation, a resident can finish a program without actually having any TMJ surgical experience, which is really problematic. So we did a few survey studies of residents and program directors to show that uh, to look at confidence level of senior residents in TMJ procedures. And for the most part, they were confident in the lower complexity procedures like arthrocentesis and arthroscopy if those are done at the program. But for the higher level, discectomy, discopexy, and total joint replacement, they were not as confident in their ability to take those on. And really, why would an oral and maxillofacial surgeon in practice who's had no training in TMJ surgery start treating TMJ patients. They, they just won't. Dr. Mercury had a, a great article back in 2017 where he evaluated the reasons why surgeon, oral and maxillofacial surgeons did not see TMJ patients. And one of the answers was, I never saw TMJ surgery during my residency. Of course, you know, these patients are very complex to deal with. Reimbursement may be low. There's a lot of issues with these patients that requires a lot of hand-holding and, again, consultation with other experts and specialists. So I think that we have a problem in terms of access to care for these patients. Where are they going to go to be seen? And I'm a big, big advocate for centers of excellence. And I think if you do a lot of TMJ surgery, discectomy, discopexy, or total joint replacement, that's where patients should go. As you may know, insurance companies are looking at that now because if they go to surgeon X who has little experience and that patient requires several procedures for complications and several readmissions, it costs them a lot more than if they went to surgeon Y who does a lot of them and the patient went home the next day and, and had no postoperative complications. So I think what we're looking at now is either improving, first of all, starting at the dental student level, improving education at the dental student level in terms of TMD and myofascial pain, which I don't think we do a great job right now or ever have. Also improving experience during training, but how do we get the surgeons on faculty who have TMJ experience to train the residents? And the last one is, is surgical fellowships, TMJ fellowships. 
those are are becoming more popular but who really wants to do a tmj fellowship when it's not going to be a major part of their practice so it becomes problematic but I think that my opinion of centers of excellence with a team led by an oral facial pain expert and the other specialists I mentioned before is probably the most appropriate way to manage the TMD myofascial pain patient. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask if where are we at with fellowships and how many are there, how likely it is for people to do those. It just seems like pretty sparse and few, few and far between type of a thing. From what I know, I think there may be two or three of them in the country, and I'm not sure they're filled every year, and I'm not sure I'm really interested in the outcomes. Are those fellows, when they become surgeons, are they leading the way in terms of seeing these patients and serving as a resource for access to care? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Well, good information and, and good good for us to be aware of, good for us to get teaching happening as early on in the dental career, surgical career as we can, for sure. Yeah. We've had an oral med- medicine specialist multiple times on the podcast. And that is, I think it's just so helpful to have someone help out with diagnosis and kind of take us by the hand on some of the ways that we can help these people in non-surgical ways. And I think it's. it seems to me if you're treating TMJ, that would just be invaluable to have somebody like that helping you out with these patients. Absolutely. And as I mentioned, we have a search going on right now for an orofacial pain expert that would be in my department, would establish the team. And it's also best if we can screen those patients with a questionnaire online where we, before making their appointment, they fill out the questionnaire and we get a sense of where they need to, to go and which team members should meet with them when they come for their consultation. And as you know, the majority of these patients are not surgical candidates. Another reason why oral and maxillofacial surgeons in practice would likely not want to see these patients because I think you'd have to see a hundred patients to have maybe one or two that need surgery. And it's a lot of, a lot of effort to go through. But if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Who's going to help these patients? So I think we have a, an obligation at least to see these patients. And our our clinic still continues to see these patients. And again, we see many for the 5% that might need surgical intervention. Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm glad you guys are doing that. I think there's a stigma with these patients that once you get involved with them, it it never ends the involvement. And there's lots of pain, lots of complaining, lots of surgeries that don't work. And so that in itself is just kind of a scary thing for the oral neck special surgeon to be like, do I want to go down this road? And what does it hold for me as the provider? It sounds like you've kind of got this to a fairly smooth process. Is that the case? Or are you still dealing with a lot of difficult patients? Well, you hit it on the head. I mean, we do have the team, so to speak. We have those experts within the UIC system, just not with me. And do they need to be with me to jointly see the patient? Well, in some cases, it would be helpful. But for example, we have a patient who needed a bite splint, and we're just not doing that in oral surgery, and and they're doing it in oral medicine. They can easily in-house. We're printing the splints in-house now, so it makes it a lot easier. So once we determine that the patient's not a surgical candidate, not even for arthrocentesis, we'll send the patient to our oral medicine folks for a splint, or we'll send them to our, our psychologist over at the hospital, or we'll send them to our chronic pain center at the hospital under anesthesia because they might need chronic pain management. It's already beyond the uh, ability to manage surgically. So, and like I said, they, they just have so many, every patient is different and they have, they have complex history 
which is another critical component of evaluating the patients is listening to the history and how they got to be where they are today. And really not to do anything irreversible. I think we've developed a really conservative, so to speak, approach to the TMD patient based upon what happened in the 80s and 90s. When I was training, we did a lot of total joint replacements. And at that time, the Teflon proplast disc replacements and the Kenfitec prostheses, we caused more harm than good in those patients back then. So I think we've all taken a more conservative approach. We think that it's really important to look at the cellular and molecular biology that's involved in muscle disease and chronic pain and TMD. And I'm hoping that, well, if we have good big data sets that we can look at, and now that we have wisdom, EMR, that we can look at wisdom and the data that's there and extract information that will help us with diagnosis and managing these TMD myofascial pain patients. Yeah, what I'm hearing you say is that it's critical to diagnose, which includes history, exam, you know, your imaging functions that you have available. It's critical to get that right and get them to the right person as opposed to doing a quick exam and, okay, I'll just do this procedure and maybe it'll work and it won't. And then kind of getting them maybe potentially into a worse spot. Exactly. Exactly. I like to say that since the literature is not helpful for us, we don't have really high level evidence based clinical practice. What we're doing is we're practicing our practice is actually experimental clinical research without IRB approval. If you really think about it, we're doing therapy, we're performing therapy that is not evidence based. And we really like, especially with residents, we like to tra train residents in evidence-based practice. And this is one area where we don't have that evidence. I think it's going to get better. We do need prospective RCTs, randomized controlled trials that, and multi-center that evaluate patients. So not just one surgeon. And I think we are working towards those studies. As you know, they're not easy to do. They're time consuming. They're expensive. You need the personnel. You need a, a site study coordinator to follow these patients appropriately. And the patients need to fill out questionnaires subjectively. We need to have good clinical exams, good follow-up of at least a year, at least a year. And sometimes it's not possible to get that patient back at a one-year follow-up. So uh, good prospective RCTs are very difficult to do, but they're certainly needed, especially in this area. Well, good. Thank you so much for taking the time to run through some of that. Certainly, it's not exhaustive of everything involved in TMD and treating it, but I think it's been a good overview. If there are listeners who have kind of further questions about what we've talked about, are you okay if I put some of your contact info in the show notes? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Sounds good. Just to end with a couple rapid fire questions. I know I asked you this a couple of years ago, but do you have a new favorite book or anything you've been reading lately that you'd recommend to our listeners? Right. The last book I read was Die With Zero. And I think I read it just a little bit too late in my life. Okay. For the young residents and young surgeons, I think it's a good book to read. It's a little deceptive. It doesn't mean you're dying with zero. It just, what the book intends to do is to show you how to spend your money. So you have high educational debt, so you can't start spending money until that's somewhat paid off. But it looks at your, your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and says, okay, this is, this is how you should be spending your money rather than saving it. Because I think the philosophy of most of us is to just continue to put money away and you're going to die with that money left for somebody else. So it really, it looks at how you should be maximizing life experiences with that money, that that is so much more valuable than having money in the bank. 
And I wish I had that philosophy, but I was like most of us paying off educational debt for many years. And I was in the save, save, save mode. And it's whatever is important to you. If travel is important to you, that few thousand dollars that you spend on travel is so much more worth it than putting that few thousand dollars in the bank. And it also talks about if you if your intent is to leave money to your children, they don't need the money when you die. Give them the money while you're still alive so they, they can enjoy it. Maybe they want to buy a house or something like that. So the money that you are going to leave to them upon your demise should be given to them while you're still alive. And then you can enjoy watching them enjoy the benefits of that money. So it's like kind of philosophies and recommendations like that, not to necessarily die with zero, but to maximize your life experiences with the money that you have. I love that. That's a great point. I'll tell you too, I can add up, piggyback onto that and say, if, if you don't want to save a bunch of money and you want to spend it, have six kids. That's a good way to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. But no, yeah, travel is like huge in me and my wife's list. And so we do that frequently with our kids and go crazy places and have them experience all different things. And to us, that's the most valuable way to spend our money. I'm sure it's a different answer for everybody. Right, right. Absolutely. Yep. Any good shows you're watching? Do you ever have time to watch Netflix or anything? Let's see. There have been some good shows in the past. I don't, we don't get too much into a series. I'm a big White Lotus fan for sure. I'm a huge Sopranos fan from way back when. So Michael Imperioli is on it in the second season of White Lotus. So I really enjoy both of those, both of the seasons, the Sopranos, whenever I get a chance. I actually just watched Saltburn. I don't know if you've seen Saltburn yet. I haven't. Was it good? kind of interesting. It's up for several awards, Academy Awards. The acting is really, really excellent. It's sort of a dark, dark comedy, I guess you can look at it that way, but a great finale. So really well thought out, well written and well acted. So I can recommend seeing that. There are some disturbing scenes in it. So if you look on social media, you'll see that some people got very upset about some of the scenes. There are maybe two or three of them that are somewhat of questionable taste, but it goes along with the character and he, the protagonist is such a great actor. I read that he actually impromptu acted some of those. They weren't in the actual script. So he was really in character when he did the disturbing, so to speak, scenes. And yeah, so that was the last movie I saw. Nice. It's a good recommendation. Okay. And then last time, I really loved the quote you shared was from Bruce Lee, which is, don't pray for an easy life, but pray for the strength to endure a difficult one. Any other good quotes for us that you have? Mm, I haven't thought about that one for this show. Yeah, maybe based upon that, die with zero is live life to its fullest because it's not that long. Yeah, kind of that philosophy of live in the present and do the most you can while you're in the present, not so much focused on the future and, and that type of a thing. I like that. Don't delay joy. Yes. That's awesome. All right, Dr. Malaro. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This has been a great asset to myself and I hope to our listeners and hopefully we can reconnect in the future. My pleasure. Hope to see you soon, Grant. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. For more information on these podcasts, please visit everydayoralsurgery.com. I love feedback and would be very grateful if you would reach out to me via my email, grantstukey at gmail.com, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Or you can text me at 720-441-6059. Additionally, if you have any topics you'd like to hear about, or if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, 
please, please email or text me. I found many of my interviewees through people who have been contacting me and have been listening and I've gotten so many great uh, ideas for more podcasts and that's what helps keep keep the podcast rolling. So really appreciate you making that extra effort and helping me out with uh, feedback and knowing what to do next on the podcast. Thank you so much.